We are looking at Acts chapter 2 and the events and the preaching and the consequences of that on the day of Pentecost. And we've come to verse 42 in Acts chapter 2 where we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now he tells us uh, a number of fascinating things about the new life of certain people. Who were these people? Let's start with that. They did this, Luke says. Who were they? Well, they were the 3,000 new believers who by the providence of God were in Jerusalem at that time at the Feast of Pentecost. They were men who had gone through three stages in their lives. Firstly, they were sincere people, who many of them moral, many of them religious people, ordinary people. They'd come to Jerusalem, many of them, on a pilgrimage. And others were local people who then uh, let their rooms at all these festivals, made their life's income from these occasions, bed and breakfast establishments. And people had come from across the Mediterranean basin as far away as Libya and, and uh, Rome itself, and they came to gather here. Now, none of them, none of these 3,000 that uh, Luke describes for us were originally Christians or had been Christians before this day. The breakfast time, they were unbelievers. Supper time, they were repenters who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And secondly, these people had heard Christian preaching, and everything changed. This happens throughout Christian history, and it still occurs everywhere still today. There was a Dutchman called J. Franja in Barneveld, and this happened to him. He said, at a certain time in my life, God opened my understanding to two matters— his justice, and my own guilt. Now, those are great discoveries to make of our great worthlessness and his great love. When Franja submitted to God as a guilty sinner, then he said, God struck such a grievous wound in my heart that nothing could possibly heal it. I brought his wrath upon me, and now... My conscience became his holy sword. I shall never forget it. My sins weren't mere deficiencies. They were things I had committed. I'd made onslaughts against God's crown and justice. Oh, it's a terrifying experience to discover one's lost condition and to lie there in it. Then God did something miraculous to me. He revealed his son in me. And gave me life in Christ. That's his testimony. That's exactly what happened to these people 2,000 years ago. They listened to Peter. They heard the gospel message. They experienced the justice and condemnation of God. And we are told, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And they accepted that message and were baptized. It's these people then that Luke tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's no way that uh, such a new pattern of life can begin or be sustained unless you've been given 
some hunger, some thirst to know God, to love God, to serve God, to please Him. That your chief end from now on is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And the way for this is by turning from your sin and your unbelief and trusting in Jesus Christ. There will be no desire for God and his word unless that first happens. You have to have a new heart and a new nature and know a new birth and be new creations for that to be achieved. And then thirdly, then we are told that these Convicted people, 24 hours later, were gathering together to hear the teaching of the apostles. So let's think of that. Let's, let's guess that there were now about 3,600 of them. The 3,000 new converts and the 120 who uh, were already Christians um, before this time and then others that were brought along, their wives, their families, their friends. And so each of the 12 Apostles had about 300 people to teach. And so uh, they met uh, along the walls of the city, in the shade of the trees. They met in the olive grove of uh, Gethsemane. They met in the north and south and east and west of the city. They were scattered through the city, hundreds of them, and they began to meet. Some met in the mornings, others were working all day, and so they met in the evenings day by day at some convenient time. And they were full of questions. Well, uh, who was Jesus of Nazareth? What did he say? What did he mean when he said, uh, uh, destroy the temple and in three days I will rebuild it? What does that mean? Did he really cleanse lepers? Uh, Did he raise the dead? Did you see it? Why did he die then? Did he really rise from the dead? Where is he now? And so on. And all the apostles had an authority that was given to them by Jesus Christ to to, um, inform and instruct and educate these new Christians because um, they had just put their feet on the first rung of the ladder. And now they were needing to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't convert any But by the help of the Holy Spirit, they could give illumination to those uh, that had trusted in and believed in Jesus Christ. And then as the years went by, these uh, 12 apostles, not all of them stayed in Jerusalem. They went out and out. Peter, we know, went to Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia in Turkey, and he was a, a preacher there. And eventually they wrote down, the, uh, the Gospels, the four Gospels, and the life of the Lord Jesus. So we go back to the fountainhead. We read one of those Gospels this morning, and the window, it opened up in a day in the life of Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. And so there are Gospel pulpits all over the world today, in every continent. And there are individual Christians who say the same things. There are parents who teach their children. And there are Sunday school teachers who instruct their classes. And I'm teaching what the apostles teach about Jesus Christ. I'm not given authority to deviate from that by a jot or a tittle. And if I do, I have no right to call my own ideas Christian or to expect God to bless 
what is said. The parameters of our entire ministries have been set out for us by the word who became flesh and who spoke and inspired his apostles to write his word. If men desert the teachings of the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ for some religious perversion, then you know those solemn words that the Apostle Paul spoke in the first chapter of the letter to the Galatians. You know them in verses 6 to 12. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than that what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to please men or God? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that men made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So that's the claim the apostles made and affirmed and added in their letters and warned of any deviation from the apostolic teaching. And if this pulpit should ever then begin to wobble, and men that follow me then should begin to deviate and say, well, with their meekness and humility, they couldn't accept this and they couldn't accept that. And he ignores your concerns and your sobs and your tears. And you must leave this beloved building and find a place which is faithful to the teaching of the apostles. Their eternal truth demands that of you. There is one word that's been given to us by eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus Christ, by people who were with him. And we go back to that fountainhead and we drink from it and we say to Matthew, the tax collector, and John, the apostle, and Mark, we say, tell us then, tell me the stories of Jesus. I love to hear. Tell me. Tell me. What did he do? What did he say? The church doesn't belong to any man, however bright and brilliant he may be. But the church is Jesus. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So secondly, I want to ask why they had to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the reason for? There was a new pattern then to their days a new pattern to their evenings, especially to the first day of the week. They were very busy people. They had to work to survive. They weren't living in days of uh, pensions and social security. There was no national health service, and they had to support their elderly parents themselves, and yet they found time now in the midst of all this routine of their life to go and sit and listen to apostles' teaching. Why? Well, firstly, to rid themselves of wrong ideas. 
Um, they were just beginning. They were just baby Christians. And they were bringing into the kingdom of God tons of muddle and rubble from the traditions they had received from their fathers. They had muddled views of who God is and what they were to do with their lives as Christians. They had strange views of the attributes of God and they needed clarification. They needed the clouds that were hiding his beauty and glory to be blown away and the apostles could do that. They had confused views of forgiveness. They thought, well, all our past sins are forgiven, but the sins of today, last night, oh, well, you know, I've got to do something to get rid of those. They thought, uh, maybe there are many roads to God, and there is just this one road, uh, Jesus, amongst many others, and they were wrong there. Or they brought Jewish food laws into uh, the kingdom of God, or their culture's views of women and their subordinate role, and they needed to be helped there too. On top of this, uh, in every heart, there's a bias in the best man and the best woman here this morning, the oldest, most mature Christian. There still, he fights with a bias. The good that he would, he doesn't do. The evil that he wouldn't do, he finds himself doing, and he says, Ah, I'm a wretched man, aren't I? I'm a failure. We think, we act in ways that are displeasing to God. We pick up, then, the culture of which we are a part, and we need to come here each day and gain new understanding. Because we're still saying, Yes, but... Yes, yes, I agree, but... And we listen, we need to listen to different men. We need to expose ourselves to different teachings of the same Bible. That we mustn't be people who say, I can only hear what Peter has to say, or I can only hear what Matthew or Paul has to say, and I can only learn from my favorite preacher. You can learn from James and Jude and Matthew and the writer to the Hebrews and so on. They have much to teach you. And we often feel when we go to church, uh, well, you know, we, we, we forget what we've heard. And you're thankful that you've got a copy of today's sermon to take with you. and You can look that up, but oh, you forget so soon. And you say, oh, my brain is like a sieve. But after a sieve has been put in water and washed and, and cleansed and lifted out and all the water drains out, it's a cleaner sieve. And that's the purpose of our gathering together and hearing the teaching of the apostles on Sundays. You remember how Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. He prayed, sanctify them, Father, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. And that's why we come to just again get our priorities right and grow in understanding and see that some of the things that we believe are really erroneous. And secondly, we, we gather to hear the Apostles' teaching to enable us to make wiser choices in the future. They're big choices, aren't they? Some of you students, a career. A place to live, uh, a life partner, a husband, a, a wife, 
And you're going to meet people on your pilgrimage and they are going to have uh, bright eyes and shining faces and they will speak to you with glowing intensity about the blessings that they've discovered from certain things that they've experienced and learned. And if you know the teaching of the apostles, then you will be delivered from gullibility. And you won't be bought by the smile of a young person or a woman or a man and lose your way and get caught up in cultic ideas. And your exposure to Matthew or Mark or John or Peter or Paul is going to help you. You won't lose your way. You, you might think, for example, that Jesus Christ is great, that he is like God. But then you read the opening words of Hebrews. You read that teaching of that apostle. And there you read what God said to the Lord Jesus Christ, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He didn't say that he was like God, but he called him God. The word who was in the beginning and was with God, John calls him. So the teachings of the apostles are going to save you confusion and heresy. And you're going to be delivered from fashionable existential ideas that float around and that are commended by the media or the cultic Aryans who come in their pairs and stand on your door and talk to you. You will be guided by the scriptures. You will be guided not by imagination or feelings. The Bible says to you, this is the sort of husband you ought to be. This is the sort of father. This is the sort of wife or mother you should be. These are the sort of children you should be. This is the sort of preacher you should preach. And this is what you should teach the people. This is how you are to act towards your neighbor, towards your enemy. You should overcome evil with good and it teaches you and teaches you. So you are not to wait for the goose pimples and read the braille of goose flesh in knowing how you are to act. You're not to wait for the tingle factor before you live in a God-honoring and a holy and a self-denying way. Your actions, your words are to be guided by the teaching of the apostles. Uh, for example, the self-disclosure of what Paul went through. And you're not to be any different from him. And you are to find the same grace that he was given will be operative in your life, whatever might come in the crosses and losses that God decrees for all of us. Because that's the term of discipleship. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And by the teaching of the word of God, you learn guidance. Abi Kuyper speaks about uh, a farm laborer. And this farm laborer, he was uh, just uh, fed up of being a laborer. And he wanted to be a, an evangelist. And so one day he went to the farmer and told him he was quitting to become a preacher. What makes you think like that? The Christian farmer said to him. Well, he said, see those clouds? And he pointed up to the clouds. You see, that one is a big P. And that one is a big C. And that is saying, preach Christ. The farmer looked and he said, no, it, PC means plant corn. 
Go back to your work, he said to him. Because he knew the inadequacies of the man to be a, a preacher of the gospel. He wasn't fit for it yet. Well, we're not going to read signs in the sky as guidance with what we are to do with our lives, are we? We read First uh, Timothy 3 and we see there what is the moral character of a man who would be a preacher of the gospel. And we, we grow to love the message that's found in the word of God. And oh, we know men and women need this more than anything else. And uh, other people encourage us and guide us. And the teaching of the apostles is far wider than that. Some of you are students and uh, you're studying psychology or international politics or history or law or natural sciences. And you'll receive great help from the Bible. It will bring your thoughts under a wholesome, under pure, and uh, the most objective witness that you can have to reality is found in the life of Jesus Christ, the, the most sane of all people, is Jesus Christ. And he will guide you. He'll guide you about spending money and saving money and tithing. And in every dilemma and every area of inquiry, there'll be principles that will be vital and living, that will save you from compromise and crime. The doctrine of the apostles. And there's another reason why we are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And that is to enable us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. There's no other way to Christ-likeness than by understanding the book that's before you now. The Bible. You know, we say about someone that we love very, very much. We say, to know her is to love her. And that's certainly true of knowing God. The more we know about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, uh, the more we know about his relationship with the world, the better we'll trust him, and the more we'll adore him. You remember the Virgin Mary and how a messenger from God came and spoke to the Virgin Mary and told her what extraordinary things were going to happen. That the long-promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, that he'd come, she was going to give birth to him. And he calmed her fears and soothed her, her worries and told her it was so. And you remember her response, my soul doth magnify the Lord. He was great for her all her life until this time. But never had she seen him so great as when he made known his will to her. How great thou art. She had the greatest possible, the maximal possible view of God. And a growing view through her life. What would you think of praise that consisted always of children's choruses? What would you think if we gathered here today and instead of singing holy, 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 we'd sung I'm H-A-P-P-Y? You'd be shocked. You'd be embarrassed. 
when you became a man, you put away childish things. Your understanding of God has grown. His absolute, infinite magnificence, his splendor. Your problem is, how can I sing that majesty that angels do admire, my little voice? And he, so tremendously different from me. Doxology is enriched as our vision of God grows brighter. You think of the songbook that Charles Wesley wrote, the 1,400 hymns he wrote, and the stature of them, and the poetry of them, and the beauty, and the theology that's there in them. The greatest of carols, the greatest of hymns about the cross of Christ and his resurrection, it's there. And that's what these people in the 18th century went through as on the day of Pentecost, these 3,000 went through. The knowledge of God is linked in the New Testament with mature, useful Christian living. Paul speaks to young Timothy about the teaching which is in accordance with godliness. And the opening words of his letter to Titus, he repeats that same phrase. Words concepts that not just stretch our minds but that motivate us and move us and make our hearts beat faster. Now, no Christian believes that all the chapters of the Bible are equally important. No one believes that the first six chapters of uh, First Chronicles are equal in importance to the six chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. Nobody believes that at all. There was a purpose in the Old Testament. God spoke in sundry times and in divers manners and gave that. And they were important for their day. But for our day, we would say, oh, the letter to the Ephesians. It really is tremendously relevant and helpful and full of God. You need to know that. Not all the truths of the Bible are equally important. There are minor doctrines about the return of Jesus Christ. There are truths about the millennium and about a tribulation and so on. Minor truths. We're not going to draw blood on that. The knives are not going to go on the table for those truths. I was once chairing a meeting and Dr. Sinclair Ferguson uh, was speaking. He was speaking on um, the Puritan concept of the judgment of God. It was quite magnificent. And I was to open a discussion on that afterwards. But I I, I prayed... And then I turned to Sinclair and I said, well, let me ask you the first question. Is the teaching on the holiness and judgment of God, is it a leaf and twig doctrine? Or is it a trunk and branch doctrine? And he said, oh, it's a, it's a trunk and branch doctrine. That is, it's a a doctrine of major significance. Well, how do you tell the difference then between um, trunk and branch doctrines 
and relief doctrines. Well, a, a, a trunk and branch doctrine is one that has significant impact on our thinking, on our judgments, on our relationships, on how we live our Christian life, how we uh, think of other people, how we relate to them. A twig doctrine, like the Bible's teaching about a millennium, that has very little impact on how we live our lives day by day, how we react to other people. So the teaching of the apostles, especially the 27 books of the New Testament, the prophets in the Old and the apostles in the New, they are particularly helpful. And again and again we will turn to them. And again and again we will preach from them. Somebody pointed out to me that in the conference I attended last week, did you know that all the texts of all the preachers are from the New Testament? That wasn't good, was it? And I said, no, it wasn't good. But I can understand it. Because that's where truth is most comprehensively and fully revealed. Lastly, how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, that's the phrase they use. Um, the authorized version says, familiarly, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And here the NIV says that they devoted themselves. So it wasn't casual. Um, they didn't do it when they had nothing else to do. Let's go along and hear that man, Andrew, tonight. Okay. But they were steadfast. They, they were always there. There was a spirit of devotion in their commitment. So how can we do it? Well, firstly, with prayer. Um, knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? From his own experience, he brought low he well, been given extraordinary privileges. He'd been caught up. He'd heard words and seen sights that he wasn't able to speak to other people. And, and, and God, as a counterpoise to the danger then of, of pride, brought a thorn in the flesh into his life. And it humbled him. So there was one voice saying to Paul, you're a great man, you're greatly privileged, you have great office. And there was another voice that said to him, you're a sinner, you persecuted the church of Christ, your heart is deceitful and, and wicked. And Paul then was made sweet and could write his letters that we 2,000 years later still find so helpful for our lives. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, he said. And his grace is sufficient for you, for what you're facing this week. And then we pray as we read the word of God. And there's secondly, humility. We need to continue steadfastly with humility. There's no such thing as proud praying. It's an oxymoron. Either the prayer is going to kill the pride or the pride is going to kill the prayer. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we read the Gospels and we read the letters in 
a humble spirit. Wesley uh, Whitfield uh, read the New Testament as an early Christian. He read it on his knees. Clothe yourselves with humility. You know, it's the problem that young Christians have. You, you come to Aberystwyth and um, you come from a small church. And you come here, you have a Christian union of 100 every Friday. You will find speakers that are there, there are books. You go online, you listen to uh, top American speakers and uh, you're there. And, you know, there are people back home and never had university life and they've never had exposure to anyone except the village pastor and it's so easy to be irritated by the narrowness of their outlook the little creek in which they've paddled for so many years and they've suffered for Jesus they buried a wife they've looked after parents with dementia They've paid all their bills. And you're a student. You haven't begun. And so humility is needed to balance the love and feasting on apostles' teaching. And then thirdly, you, you, you have to progress in the apostles' teaching with, with common sense. You know, the greatest gift after grace is common sense. Practical sagacity. That you can draw conclusions from what you're reading. And they are sensible conclusions. You get deductions from verses of scripture that are correct. As long as those deductions do not contradict other clearer parts of of the Bible. For example, uh, you learn from the apostolic teaching that the Father is God. And then you learn that Jesus Christ is God, that men say to him, my Lord and my God, and then the Holy Spirit is God. So you say, oh, there are three gods, but then you learn from James and Deuteronomy, you learn, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There's only one God. So God then consists of three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there is one being who is God. And so God is different from every other being of which you have any experience at all. And you learn that. So the principle is that uh, truths that you learn mustn't contradict other, clearer, truths in other parts of the Bible. And that's true for what James says about being justified by your works and Paul saying you're justified by faith in Christ because James is saying justified and he means by that uh, vindicated. Manifest as being true whereas Paul uses the word justified as being declared righteous. There's no contradiction between them. Use your minds as you study the word of God. Use your intelligence. And fourthly, you get by with a little help from your friends. Your pastor, your youth leader, older Christians, your parents. So there are great books to read. There's J.C. Ryle to read and McShane 
and Dr. Lloyd-Jones and Ian Murray's Forgotten Spurgeon and Walt Chantry's Signs of the Apostles. And they'll help you. They really will help you. Uh, ask someone who's got some wisdom and experience, what book do they recommend on this problem? And then you read with meditation. You maybe write a few notes in your diary. And uh, you find themes there. When I was a baby Christian, 1955, I had scripture union notes, and so it was First Thessalonians, and I was reading in bed at night, and then I came to a passage on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, so it's in the Bible. It is. I heard vaguely about it, but it's here. And then soon I, I went to John 14 and discovered there Jesus saying, And if I go away, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And I, right, it nailed down truths that were in this part of the Bible and in that part of the Bible. Check out the teaching of the apostles with thoughtfulness and meditation. And then with thanksgiving and praise, finally. You know, that's just, we'll end on that note. I suppose that's why Grudem's systematic theology is so excellent and that we've got so many copies in the congregation and we read it. And, because it's written in a spirit of doxology. There's a spirit of worship. He does a chapter and he says, sing this hymn now. And that's such a delightful way to study the word of God. We cry with the psalmist, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. Sometimes we just... How precious... The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, if you learned last night that you'd won the lottery, you couldn't be as happy as a Christian who's got the word of God, knows who he is and knows why he's in the world and what life is all about and where he's going and what lies after death, and what he must do to be saved, and how he should live. What, what are the thousands and millions compared to that? How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Imagine you could win a prize that you could have all your meals from now on in Michelin five-star restaurants. And all that delicious food, lobsters every day. How sweet are your words to my mouth, sweeter than honey. Or, oh, I rejoice in your word like one who finds great spoils. So you're going along with a metal detector, and uh, the needle goes crazy, and you dig down, and you find Viking gold, worth millions. What would it do for you? What will it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of the apostles. 
we thank you for all the help that we've had from you as we've listened to sermons, as we've read your Bible together. Thank you for the books that are written and the counsels that we receive from Christian men and women. Thank you for the Lord's Day and the climax and focus of it as we gather on the Word. Do us much good, we pray today, and make us a blessing to the people around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.